Hello, friends. Merry Christmas, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute, and I'm your host here from week to week. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts discussing the texts for the first Sunday in Christmas 2018. To go along with this Christmas episode, we have several articles from our website posted in the show notes for you. So if you're looking to do some extra reading on Christmas during the season of Christmas, we hope that you will find those helpful. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on this discussion over these texts. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lightheart. I'm here with Alastair Roberts, who is joining us from England. Uh, And Merry Christmas to you all. Today we're talking about the readings for the first Sunday after Christmas in 2018. That's December 30th, the last Sunday of 2018. And the readings for this Sunday are Exodus 13, a couple of selections from that chapter, verses 1 through 3 and 11 through 15. Uh, Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, and then Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. One of the things that uh, holds some of these readings together, I think, is the notion of Jesus as firstborn. That certainly is the rationale behind the Exodus passage, which is the chapter, Exodus 13, is the chapter that comes immediately after the instructions for Passover and the, uh, the enactment of those instructions, the slaughter of the Passover lamb, the display of the blood, the angel of death going through the land of Egypt, And then chapter 13 gives instructions about permanent rituals and regulations that um, Israel has to do because of Passover, because they've been through the the experience of Passover. Uh, They're going to keep these rules of the firstborn and celebration of the annual Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's part of the instruction of chapter 13 as an an annual memorial and a regular memorial of of the Exodus. And the, the claiming of the firstborn is rooted in Passover. The Lord saves the firstborn of Israel, destroys the firstborn of Egypt, and by saving the firstborn of Israel, claims the firstborn. All the firstborn of Israel belong to the Lord in a particular way. All of Israel, of course, belongs to the Lord, but the firstborn especially, because they were the ones that were particularly saved through the, um, through the Passover. And so, uh, because of that, the Lord claims them, and uh, the instruction is that every every animal that opens the womb of a mother animal uh, is devoted to the Lord, either as a sacrificial animal, if it's a sacrificable species, or the animal is killed, uh, if it's not a sacrificable species, if it's a donkey, for example, the firstborn still belongs to the Lord, but it just has to be destroyed. It can't be used by the Israelite. That's a, that would be a violation of the Lord's claim on the animal. Uh, and also the firstborn of uh, every human mother is also claimed by the Lord. Uh, the firstborn males belong to the Lord. In Numbers, this is uh, taken up as a, um, uh, this is altered somewhat. You have the, the census of the uh, Levites, uh, and the Levites are installed or ordained as replacements for the firstborn, and they take over that role that the firstborn, uh, they take over that role of service that the firstborn were claimed for 
So the Levites become kind of the, the uh, secondary firstborn, the, the uh, symbolic firstborn tribe in Israel. As Exodus 13 indicates, this is a, is a teaching moment. It's part of Israel's pedagogy. This, uh, this uh, commitment of the firstborn to the Lord becomes part of uh, the instruction that Israel gives to its children. Those sons who had never, who did not experience and witness the Passover are reminded of the Passover and they're taught about the Passover when they ask, why is it that you're giving this animal to the Lord? Why is it that the firstborn is devoted to the Lord? And then there's an explanation uh, about what happened in Egypt and how the Lord claimed the firstborn by delivering the firstborn from the angel of death. So um, that's the those are the regulations that are given here. And the, the connection with Christmas is that the Lord Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, also the firstborn of the dead, uh, and so he fulfills these regulations and these rites from the Old Testament. Reading this passage, it's also important to consider carefully the context in which it's given. This isn't just a miscellaneous ritual or um, law that's given. It's connected with the Passover, but it's also connected with the broader context of the beginning of Exodus, which is essentially a birth story. You start off with Israel groaning, in its suffering and its travail. And then alongside that, you have the particular stories of the um, women of Israel bearing children, the children of Israel bearing many children, and the Hebrew midwives and their faithfulness, and then Moses and Jochebed and Miriam. And the story there is the story of a child being brought to birth and the threat of the dragon of Pharaoh to that child. And then later on, when God appears to Moses, he talks about the threat that will be given to Pharaoh, that um, Israel is God's firstborn son, therefore he will deliver him, but he will kill the firstborn of Egypt if they will not let them go. And so this story is very much a story of Israel coming to birth. And so the blood on the doorposts, and then later on the passing through, the, the breaking of the waters and the passing through of this narrow passage to a new life on the other side, it is a birth event. And so Israel is the firstborn son. And in, um, in memorial of this status of Israel as the firstborn son, the firstborn males of Israel, um, the firstborn males to open the womb are given particular significance within this ritual. Right. And the, the, within the narrative of the negotiations and conflict with Pharaoh, you have the another dimension of that same that same thread, uh, which is the negotiations that have to do with the, the little ones. Uh, Pharaoh is ready to let Moses go into the wilderness, but he can only take the adults. He can't take the children. He can't take animals with him. So there's a series of negotiations in those, uh, in, uh, with, uh, with Pharaoh. That, and then one of the key issues is whether the children are going to be going with, going out of Egypt. So yeah, Israel as a whole is being delivered as the son, um, the Lord's own firstborn. But within that, the children who are being brought out of Egypt are highlighted. What do you make of the inclusion of the place of the livestock, that um, their close association with Israel here? It's something I've never been completely sure of how to take that. It's not just the lives of Israel, but every single one of their the wombs of their livestock are also significant, as if by virtue of their connection with 
they're Israelite owners, these animals have a specific importance too. Yeah, in general, I think the, that analogy is uh, written into a lot of the institutions of, of the Mosaic system. I mean, it's that analogy between animal and person is uh, the background of the sacrificial system. It's the, pr- the premise for an animal sacrifice that the animal can represent a human being. And then the animals are, the animals are being delivered from Egypt too, so there's a, there's a claim there. Uh, I wonder if the, the deeper background isn't uh, the original firstborn story in the Bible, which is Genesis 22, and the, the, uh, uh, the deliverance of Isaac from, uh, from sacrifice, from his death, and the substitution of an animal. Um, that, that creates the link between the animal as a substitute for the firstborn specifically, not just for the, uh, not just for the, uh, not just for a son or for a person, but specifically for the firstborn. And that event, uh, in Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac is the, the root of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So there may be, you know, some Abrahamic background to the, to that link. Uh, Colossians 2, um, or rather, Colossians 3 is the passage. Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 uh, is concerned with the, begins with an exhortation to uh, set our minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Um, we're to be heavenly minded and seek the things that are above, not the things on the earth. And as uh, Paul goes on describing what that means, he describes it in terms of a uh, putting off of an old of the old and putting on of new, and in uh, the the uh, uh, list he, he, he lists the kind of works of the flesh. He doesn't call them that, but the 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 members of the earthly body are dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Uh, that uh, those are the things that need to be put off. And when he turns to the things that must be put on. He describes them in term in terms of uh, a uh, set of virtues uh, that which is these are within the passage that, uh, that we're looking at a heart of compassion kindness humility gentleness patience that bears with one another forgiving each other just as the Lord has forgiven of us there are seven different things in my counting that are listed there and then the eighth verse fourteen is love which is the bond uh, the bond of unity and so putting off the the works of the flesh as it were. Uh, killing those things and putting on these uh, uh, these uh, this eightfold virtue, this virtue of new creation that um, is given to us by the Spirit. And Paul then goes on to add, verse 15, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. So perhaps we're to understand that there are ten things that are being commended to us as being put on, which would be perhaps a uh, reference back to the back to the ten words in uh, uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy. Paul uses the language of virtues here um, and presents a certain grammar of the virtues in part with the emphasis upon love in particular, which gives a unity and um, integrity to all the other virtues connecting them together. As again, we see this in um, 1 Corinthians 13. But how do we handle this language of virtue. It's often appealed to within the current context, and we do see it within the New Testament. But it seems to me that Paul uses the language of virtue in a, it's not just a carrying over of an Aristotelian tradition or something like that. There's 
a theological shape to this vision of virtue that we need to attend to if we're going to handle it well. Right. Yeah, and I, I, I use virtue for lack of a better term. I mean, Paul's term would probably be, fruit would be a better Pauline term to describe it, to describe what he's talking about. But yet, I agree with that, that this is it's not Aristotelian in a couple of different senses. It's not Aristotelian because you have, uh, you have virtues or fruits here that are not uh, included among uh, the classical kinds of virtues. I don't think that humility is understood as a virtue in uh, classical classical ethics. Uh, and you also have the, the, the root or the source of it is uh, not um, Christian versions of the virtues, which, as you have in Thomas, for example, transform the classical virtues into a theological system by talking in terms of a habitus that's implanted, that's the work of the Spirit that uh, gives us so there's something, something comes from God, something from outside that becomes the source of these fruits or of these virtues. Here uh, in, in uh, Colossians 3, Paul talks about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. He talks about the word of Christ richly dwelling within us. And um, of course, in Galatians, he talks about the fruits of the Spirit. So these, uh, whatever these virtues are, they're not the result of a kind of self-perfection or self-discipline, but they are... Uh, give their gifts from outside, so their fruits and gifts. I think would be the the more uh, maybe the more technically correct uh, version. And I think that um, Brian Brock has um, made the point that uh, virtue language um, uh, tends to obscure the the more apocalyptic dimension of the New Testament's description of uh, the Christian life. The virtu- virtues suggest a kind of steady growth. Uh, uh, a steady growth in in uh, moral goodness, and Brock's point is that the, there's a God is more interventive than that. Uh, God intervenes and confronts and corrects, and it's it's a much more it's a much rougher. If you were to if you were to graph it, the graph would look much rougher than it would uh, if you're just thinking in terms of a kind of a smooth increase of virtue over time. Uh, there's a there's a much more interactive and a more, he tends to use the idea of a kind of apocalyptic with God uh, intervening and coming near to confront us and to arrest us in our vices. The language of putting on virtues might be interesting to reflect upon in that context, that it's not a matter of forming these things within ourselves so much as receiving something from outside, which we put upon ourselves. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's good. The, uh, Clothing image could uh, have a couple of different uh, sources. One one could be the uh, clothing of the spirit that we have in the book of Judges and elsewhere, when the judges are clothed with the spirit and uh, act out God's uh, justice in Israel. We're told elsewhere that we're to be clothed with Christ, and so yeah, those uh, those are that's the image that's being offered here. We're putting on virtues, but we're actually what we're actually doing is putting on the character of Christ. We're putting on Christ. And that's possible through the Spirit and through the work of the, the Word of Christ that richly dwells within us. I, I, would, I, I wouldn't want to move from this passage without highlighting verse 16, where the Word of Christ richly dwelling within us has the effect of producing wisdom, has the effect of producing wise teaching and admonition. But the particular form that that takes in verse 16 is psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs singing with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So this is similar to what um, 
Ephesians 5 talks about, when it talks about the work of the Spirit, uh, we're to be, not to be drunk with wine, but be uh, filled with the Spirit, inebriated with the Spirit, and that produces song. Uh, and that's the same kind of movement that we have here with the Word of Christ richly dwelling in us, so that we instruct one another and admonish one another, but those admonish admonitions take the form of song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. The Spirit's effect among believers is to produce joyful singing. Uh, the effect of the Word of Christ dwelling richly within us is to produce joyful singing. I don't know if that has anything to do with the assignment of this text for the first Sunday after Christmas, but it certainly fits. Uh, there's no moment in the in the biblical history when there's as much singing as there is uh, with the birth of Christ. Maybe the only uh, the other occasions uh, that would uh, that would match this would be occasions uh, that are recorded in Chronicles when uh, the Lord comes into his house in the temple, which is a kind of proto-incarnation, and that's greeted with the singing of Israel. So the coming the coming of the Word of Christ within us, the coming of the Word of Christ to us at Christmas is a uh, provokes, evokes a song from the angels and from human beings. And the context that we have here where there's an emphasis upon love, binding things together um, in perfect unity or harmony, um, that even um, if that's not intended within the text itself, it suggests the significance of love as the lover singing. And within the context of the worship of the church, the expression of song is one of the ways in which the richness of these virtues is expressed and experienced. It's one of the things I've always found very powerful about a sung liturgy, mm. that you're joined together in this song. And the gratitude and the joy that is expressed through that is something that is characterized by love, the binding together of people in harmony. It, yeah, it is, it is genuinely a, a, a common action. It's, an, it's a kind of literal, a literal binding together of, of uh, the singers. I, I probably have said this before in, uh, on the podcast, but it's a memorable experience for me to be in situations where I'm singing in a large group and singing in parts and standing among people who know how to sing bass, um, and uh, feeling their singing, feeling the vibrations of their voices and their bodies vibrating through me. And I become a better singer because I'm surrounded by people who are better singers than I am. It actually upgrades my own capacity. I think there's a kind of physical emblem of the unity that, uh, that you're talking about there. I always think also of... Uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards comment that his vision of heaven is of uh, the saints sweetly singing together. That's the that's the perfection of unity in praise to God and love for one another and unified by song. You've written the book on gratitude. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on verses fifteen and seventeen, which both foreground giving thanks. Yes, I did write a book on gratitude. I just refer people to buy the book. That would that would uh, <laughs> that would help everyone. I'd get a few pennies of royalties. Uh, you would have the full picture, but so much, so much to say about that. Um, it's hard to know where where to begin. And um, I guess a couple of things, that, a couple of things that stand out to me in Paul's teaching on gratitude. Uh, one is that um, I, I think the what Paul advocates is a continuous stance of gratitude, continuous thanksgiving, uh, not a periodic uh, act of thanks 
for particular benefits that are given. But thanksgiving or, or gratitude as a, as a kind of basso continuo of an entire life. And that is related, of course, to Paul's conception of life and everything as a gift. We have nothing that we haven't received. Uh, and if we, have, uh, if we have received it and received everything that we have, then the only proper stance, the only proper creaturely stance before God is one of gratitude, thanksgiving for gifts that we are given and didn't deserve. So there's a there's, so there's this um, Thanksgiving is all is an all encompassing. It's not a matter of etiquette. It's not a matter of even of ethics. Really, it's an all encompassing stance in life. It's all encompassing attitude toward life. The other thing that I'm I've been particularly struck by over the last couple of years is uh, Paul's statement, and I think in First Timothy four about um, receiving created things and everything is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. In that context, Paul also talks about receiving things with gratitude. Everything created is good, and nothing should be re- rejected. Um, it's uh, sanctified uh, by the Word of God in prayer, and the prayers in view are prayers of thanksgiving. That's uh, evident from the context where Paul talks about thanksgiving. And there's an uh, interesting kind of, the idea that thanksgiving is an act of consecration seems to be part of Paul's thought there, that uh, by giving thanks for things, uh, they are claimed, they are sanctified as God's things. Just as a, you know, the, the tabernacle was sanctified by rituals of, rituals of uh, consecration, anointings, sacrifices, and so on, we still have a continuous, we still have rites of consecration, as it were, that sanctify things as God's things. But we do that by, by giving thanks. We do that, don't do that through these other rites. The Eucharist is the, the Eucharist is the obvious central example of that. This kind of cuts through the debates about whether we pray, pray, pray a prayer of consecration or prayer of thanksgiving. In Paul's terms, I think a prayer of thanksgiving is a prayer of consecration. It's a, some, it's a prayer that claims, uh, uh, that acknowledges God's claim on the thing that we're giving thanks for. So the Eucharist is kind of the model, but it's not the only, it's not the only time when we consecrate by thanksgiving. We're, and if, we're, if our whole life is filled with acts of thanksgiving, then uh, our whole life is uh, consecrating and devoting to God whatever it is we come in contact with, whatever it is we give thanks for. He's already talked about the character of love as binding everything together in perfect harmony. In verse 17, when there's an, an equally comprehensive statement, whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, etc. And within that statement, I find it interesting to observe the emphasis upon a certain order when we talk about the trinity we talk about the taxis of the trinity that um from the father um through the son in the holy spirit but within thanksgiving there is a sort of reciprocal order whereby we are giving ourselves in the spirit through the son to the father and that significance of the connection between thanksgiving and that ordered character that is a comprehensive ordering of whatever we do i find maybe highlights just how significant thanksgiving is as an action that it is the fundamental ordering of our lives that corresponds to god's own ordering of his life and his work and mission within the world yeah, another way, another kind of gloss on what you just said. The Spirit incorporates us into the 
uh, thank, thank offering that Jesus offers to his Father. And so we offer, um, offer ourselves and offer um, thanks to God in the Spirit through the Son to the Father, right? Yeah, so there's a, yeah, there's a Trinitarian uh, kind of reincorporation into the Trinity or incorporation into the triune life by acts of thanksgiving. Uh, we've been talking about song that comes up here in Colossians 3. Our gospel reading is also concerned with a song, a particular song that's sung by Simeon uh, at the time that Jesus is brought into the temple. The setting is uh, that uh, uh, the parents of Jesus are bringing Jesus in order to dedicate him. After Mary's purification is over, she goes to the purification rites that Leviticus 12 lays out. Um, that's uh, highlighting the faithfulness of uh, Mary and Joseph to Torah. They are uh, law-keeping Jews. And after the purification is done, they bring Jesus to the temple and fulfill that uh, Exodus 13 passage that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, Jesus is the firstborn son of Mary and Joseph, and so he's offered as the firstborn uh, and dedicated to the Lord uh, uh, in that in that rite. Uh, of course, that this specific rite of uh, dedicating the firstborn is linked up with the with the uh, larger reality of Jesus as the firstborn of creation, the firstborn uh, of the dead, as I mentioned, as I mentioned at the beginning. And it's during that moment that uh, Simeon comes in and sees Jesus as, and, inspired by the Spirit, begins to praise the Lord. And uh, we're not told explicitly that he sings here, but he blesses God. And uh, we, we sing Simeon's song. Uh, Christians have sung Simeon's song for a very long time, and particularly as a departing song at the end of the liturgy uh, as the Nunc Dimittis. But he's inspired by the Spirit. Uh, in order to break out in song, praising God for fulfilling His promises, uh, bringing the Messiah into the world, uh, that uh, so that um, uh, He can be a light to the Gentiles. And um, uh, Simeon is uh, uh, filled with the Spirit. He came in the Spirit uh, and sees Jesus. Uh, and the passage uh, highlights the the fact that he sees Jesus several times, been revealed to him by the Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he, uh, verse 30 says, My eyes have seen the salvation which you prepared in the presence of all the peoples. So there's a link between the, the Spirit inspiring him, the Spirit speaking to him and revealing to him uh, this future, prom, this promise about uh, seeing the Christ. Uh, and there's a kind of apocalyptic or prophetic dimension to what, uh, what Simeon speaks here. Uh, inspired by the Spirit, he becomes a seer who uh, unveils the uh, reality of Christ. And as we read the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we've already noted the significance of themes from 1 Samuel. And I wonder whether there's, again, some playing off the background of 1 Samuel here. We've already seen the Magnificat and the connection of that with Hannah's prayer, with Hannah's song or prayer. And here, the character of Simeon maybe contrasts with both Eli and with um, the character of Zechariah, someone who sees in the temple. And at the beginning of Acts, we have people mistaken in the temple context for drunken speech, mis mistaking um, the glory of God spoken with drunken speech. And here we have one who truly sees, whereas Eli is dulled in his sight. 
and unable to perceive. Zachariah is um, struck dumb by the angel. And yet here we have the figure of Anna. We have the faithful couple that come to the temple. And we have this person who truly perceives, who's filled by the Spirit. And in some ways, again, we have anticipations of Pentecost here, that the Holy Spirit's work um, in this character of Simeon is very significant. The way that Simeon is described, the Holy Spirit coming upon him and um, revealed the presence or the coming of the Lord's Messiah to him and moved by the Spirit going into the temple courts. This is language that we're more familiar with in the context of Christ himself within the gospel. But here we see it applied to the character of Simeon and it seems to foreshadow something that's yet to come. Likewise with the character of Anna, who's the one who prays constantly, does not leave the temple, which is similar to the way that disciples are described at the end of and of Luke and beginning of Acts. And even the timing of this, that it's the 40th day, um, the presentation in the temple, and in the same way Christ enters the heavenly temple on the 40th day after his um, rebirth from the dead, and then the temple setting becomes very important um, for the early church. Yeah, just to clarify, the 40th day you're getting from the purification rite, is that is that what you're thinking? Yes, in Leviticus. Yeah, so yeah, the, that's not explicit in, I don't think it's explicit here in Luke, but the the purification time of uh, period of purification for a woman after a male child was born was uh, 40 days. So this would be after that. So it's uh, sometime uh, after a 40 day period. Right. Um, since you're, you're in the habit of asking me questions, so I'm going to, I'm going to turn the tables and ask you one. <laughs> so there's, there's a Simeon and there's an Anna, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a couple in the temple. So what do you make of that? First of all, I think, as we look through Luke's gospel, he'll often pair male and female characters together, um, whether that's miracles or whether it's other events that you have a male and a female character. And I think that's part of what's going on. But these characters seem to represent something more than just, um, they seem to stand for something more. Anna, in particular, her name recalls Hannah. She's the one who's praying in the temple. She's a widow until she was 84, seven times 12. And her fasting and praying day and night, these are things that we expect. Um, they are very significant actions within the context of Luke and also against the background of 1 Samuel that he plays off. Um, and then telling, speaking to the people about the redemption of Jerusalem. Again, these are very similar things to what happened at the event of um, Pentecost later on. So I think he's playing, he's anticipating that much as he did within the story of um, Mary and the spirit overshadowing her, that there is something of an anticipatory, uh, an initial Pentecost that is given to the women within this story, and or primarily to the women. And then later on, there will be this, this greater Pentecost experience by the church. The character of Simeon, um, I'm not sure what to make of the character of Simeon. His association with the sword piercing your own soul. Um, are we supposed to see some connection between Simeon and of the um, of the sons of Jacob, who is associated with the sword, with avenging the 
um, seduction of Dinah, or is there something else going on there? I'm I'm not sure entirely. But well, uh, as you were uh, asking you a question, gave me a chance to think about what um, what uh, I would say about the question. But one thing that occurs to me is that you have um, perhaps you have a link, a structural link uh, that uh, ties the beginning and end of Luke together. You definitely have uh, uh, a uh, an inclusio in the temple. I mean, Zechariah begins in the temple. The very last scene is the disciples in the temple. But then you have this couple, Simeon and Anna, in the temple greeting the baby Jesus. You also have the two disciples that are on the road to Emmaus that where Jesus reveals himself to them in Luke 24. So I wonder if the, the pairing of the we're given only one of the, one of the names in Luke 24, but um, perhaps the, the, the pair of people who see the revelation of, uh, who see Jesus in the breaking of bread in Luke 24 matches with uh, Simeon and Hannah. The other suggestion I would have is, is Simeon associated with Peter? Ah, well, Simon and Simeon, yeah, possibly. Uh, I wonder if you have a kind of Adam and Eve uh, kind of uh, portrait here too, um, uh, a pairing of a man and a woman. They're uh, um, old and waiting for the redemption. And I, um, that's it's common to see the, uh, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus as an Adam and Eve pair, even if they're not a man and a woman. They're a disciple, two disciples whose eyes are opened as they eat uh, with, uh, with Jesus. And, and the phrasing of the eye, opening of the eyes takes us back to Genesis 3. It's kind of a, an inverted fall story. Uh, where their eyes are properly opened by their encounter with the, with the uh, true tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil. The other, you mentioned the sword that uh, will pierce your own soul. He's speaking to Mary there, so there's a um, uh, reference to the, uh, Mary's suffering on, on account of her son. One of the things that uh, is notable to me is uh, uh, verse 34, the ordering of uh, his... Uh, statement about Jesus. This child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. That's an interesting way to put it. You think uh, Gibbon writes about the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. That's a, that's a typical phrasing because things go up and we know eventually things are going to go down. Not going to stay up forever. But this goes in the opposite direction. It's for the fall and rise of many. And the, the word rise there is anastasis, which is, uh, which is resurrection. So I, th- I think that's a pointer, not just to the. We we often read it as a as a sign that Jesus is going to cause, is he's going to cause the revolution that Mary sings about in the Magnificat. He's going to call cause people who are in high places to topple and people who are in low places to rise. Uh, but it, it seems like there might be a more specific reference to Jesus' own fall, which will be followed by his rise, uh, and Jesus takes others with him. Jesus takes people down to the grave with him uh, so that they can rise uh, as uh, a new people, a new Israel. So I wonder if there's a, uh, a hint of uh, the eventual cross and resurrection that, that cl- that's at the climax of the gospel. I would say that's likely. Certainly, as you point out, the order of the um, dying and rising is significant. Yeah. And that might, uh, if, if, that's, if there's a hint of the cross and resurrection, that first statement, that that might reinforce the idea that the sword that's going to pierce Mary is the, the pain of Jesus' crucifixion. But that, I don't, I, that, um, that doesn't seem to be a complete explanation for it, because the sword uh, that uh, is piercing 
Mary's soul is going to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. Uh, so there must be some other, some other dimension to that that we're not catching. If we connect it with um, Pentecost, maybe there is some light to be shed on it with the cutting to the heart mm. and through Peter's mm. message. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, we'll leave that to our listeners to figure out. Uh, spend your Christmas holiday, uh, your post-Christmas holiday, trying to figure out that uh, passage and let us know what you think. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm